This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Australia's waste crisis might get worse before it gets better with Thailand, Malaysia and Vietnam all choosing to reject waste exports from Australia and other countries around the world. This follows, of course, China's decision last year to stop being the world's dumping ground, which I think was the point when many of us learnt for the first time that our waste was being sent offshore in the first place. Um, But what do we do with our waste now is a serious situation for local and state governments as stockpiling it in our cities can also be be hazardous as we learnt in Melbourne. So what are some of the possible solutions? We've asked Professor Veena Sahajwala, Director of the Centre for Sustainable Materials Research at uh, University of New South Wales. She's uh, a materials inventor and her team is looking at all sorts of ways to create a circular circular economy where we reduce and even eliminate waste streams altogether. And we're really excited to have um, Professor Veena Sahajwala with us on the phone. Very good morning to you. Good morning and thank you for having me on your show. And we're going to get stuck into your work soon and some of the products that you're making, but how important has exporting waste been to Australia's waste management system to date, Vina? Yeah, look, I mean, we've obviously been in a rather privileged position where, you know, I mean, as as you said in your introduction, some of us really were not aware that our waste was being sent offshore to places like China. So um, the fact that we could sort of just, you know, put it out of sight, out of mind and send it away and make it somebody else's problem um, is really something that's now coming back um, to confront us. And so with other countries also following suit, including the likes of Malaysia, Thailand and Vietnam, what does that mean for for waste currently? I mean, where is it going and, and where might it end up? Yeah, look, I mean, from our point of view, really, we have to see this crisis as an absolute brand new opportunity uh, for us to look at the materials that are present there, not as a waste, but rather as a really useful resource, um, I think means that we're shifting our mindset. uh, And I think that's really what needs to happen. You know, we can't keep assuming that all of these products just have a single life. um, So, you know, that we just assume that it's going to end up uh, in landfill it just means that from our point of view we need to start to think in a far more holistic manner and and really uh, use our imagination to understand how we can in fact bring a lot of these materials that are there in our products um, back to life again. And we know um, from recent reports that just 9% of our plastics at the moment around the world are repurposed or, or recycled or reused in different products. And there's a lot of complaint coming out of China and also Malaysia that the plastic waste in particular is all mixed up and low grade that they're receiving at that end. So what, what do we need to change to, to turn it round and start to increase the amount of, of waste product, particularly plastics that actually gets reused or repurposed or recycled properly? Mm. Yeah, look, if we can if we can actually sort of start to imagine, you know, a whole new economy that's able to absorb a lot of plastics into design and production and manufacturing different types of products that we ourselves need right here in the country. So we really start at that absolute end user interface. We say whether these are products that might be useful for consumers or for businesses 
if we can actually track through and look at the value chain, then we can go right back to that upfront end of it, look at our waste materials, like you pointed out, our waste plastics, and say, well, you know, if we cannot put them back into, you know, like-for-like processing, like converting plastic bottle into more plastic bottles, then we really need to reimagine and really start to ask the question, can we actually produce something else out of our plastic? So, for instance, you know, we're using our waste plastics coming out from the electronic sector and we're showing that we can actually reform those types of plastics into producing plastic filaments that are actually really fantastic quality that can be fit for purpose for 3D printing. So, you know, these are all examples of how we can actually repurpose and reform um, and, and it goes well beyond traditional recycling in that case. You know, we're creating new product opportunities and what that then means is uh, new jobs and uh, and new economic opportunities. And there's been positive developments in terms of consumer behaviour around, you know, awareness of single-use plastics and, and straws and, and that kind of thing at that level. But I imagine that, that many have kind of lost faith in the, the waste and, and recycling system that we have as it stands when, you know, news has come about all the waste that's been dumped in, in China and so on and, and the issues with waste being exported overseas. So um, how do you see the balance, I guess, between between behaviour change and having mechanisms and uh, projects that are properly implemented that allow for that more sophisticated recycling that contributes to that whole idea of the the circular economy that, that you're talking about. Look, absolutely. And I think the key word there is about thinking about far more sophisticated solutions. You know, consumers are really open-minded if you can actually demonstrate that it's not just about making, you know, a new plastic bottle. Now, fair enough, that's the obvious sort of solution that has been happening for a long time. But I think it's going so much beyond that traditional thinking about recycling and thinking about reforming so that if consumers can see that there are opportunities to make, you know, high-quality, you know, manufactured products right here in Australia. And then I think it's taking us to the point where we don't have to necessarily always assume that just because something is coming from a waste stream that it's necessarily poor quality. So I think the key word there is producing quality products that perform well for different types of applications. So I think if consumers can actually see that, then we can make choices. We can make our own decisions about, you know, if we had the option of using a product that's made out of virgin plastic as opposed to something that's made out of recycled and reformed, plastic, you know, we can make those choices in terms of how we choose to spend our money. So I think this is where we can ourselves play a part in creating a market pull. And I think that's the all important thing is understanding if the market pull is there, if businesses are ready to manufacture a lot of these products. So manufacturing, you know, new products out of waste resources is going to be important. It's also going to be important that consumers are aware um, that they have choices. We're speaking with Professor Veena Sahajwala. She's director of the Centre for Sustainable Materials Research and Technology at UNSW. And I wonder, I mean, can you talk us through a little bit your micro factories that you've got going and and what your team's doing, Veena? Because I know that you're making what's called green steel and working with industry to start to develop products like that. Can you explain what the skill set is that's required for us to move to this kind of different way of manufacture? Mm. 
So yeah, look, I mean, certainly with microfactories, I mean, we've we've got now, um, you know, solutions that demonstrate that it is actually feasible to take some of these complex materials. You know, we've talked about plastics, and then of course we've got, you know, glass mixtures as well that we need to worry about. You know, just think about all the things that go into our yellow bins. And if we've got mixtures of different types of glass, for instance, you know, how do you then take that uh, and go beyond, again, traditional recycling of glass and plastics? But importantly, how do we produce these sophisticated products that we were talking about, but do it on a scale that is, you know, small enough so that we're talking not necessarily about, you know, that whole notion of economies of scale, but rather in this instance with microfactories, we're talking about economies of purpose. And if the purpose is really around transformation of our glass and plastics and creating new products um, that are fit for various applications. So whether they're fit for manufacturing or whether they're fit for going into a built environment, we've had, you know, furniture designers who've come in here and they've had a look at some of the, you know, products that we made, for instance, out of waste glass. And I think to me, what's been really humbling and fantastic to see is that absolute passion and feedback that we see from designers who are basically super keen um, to take some of these solutions. And again, these are about making innovative, high-quality products and doing those on a small enough scale. So you can imagine micro-factories are not necessarily about one big mega-factory. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's about really deploying decentralized solutions so that you can actually deploy them across the country. And I think what that then means is looking at local solutions and creating and boosting localized economies built around where the waste might be collected. So if you, for instance, um, you know, got a manufacturer who is actually looking over a tip uh, where the waste is being collected not too far away, um, the opportunity is to actually bring together a whole new supply chain where we're talking about taking these waste resources bringing them into a manufactured solution, but doing it within, you know, communities and regions in a local manner means that microfactories can actually enable not only the transformation of our waste, but actually creating those localised solutions and boosting local economies. We're speaking with Professor Veena Sahajwala, Director of the Centre for Sustainable Materials Research and Technology at the University of New South Wales. We're speaking, I guess, how we can all make um, better use, to, use of our, our waste and, and contribute to this idea of a circular economy and not simply ship everything offshore. But when you're talking about those kind of local economies and how this can be rolled out on a broader scale, Veena, I mean, is that something that, that needs government regulation in order for that to happen? Or is it something that the sort of, you know, business can lead and, and and can lead to a point that it will really create this kind of change that, that we need. Mm. Uh, you know, I think I think any time you come up with something that's that's new and innovative and is groundbreaking, um, you do need um, you know government um, support and and the role that government can play in making sure that they enable um, you know Australian um, you know innovations and and inventions of new products. In this case, it's Australian IP that can you know be deployed. Now, yes, we've got to recognise that the market pull has to be there. Absolutely. You've got to have an opportunity for businesses to see uh, what kind of economic opportunities exist. But I think, um, you know, in the early stages of any new inventions, you really need, you know, government to play a part. And particularly when we are talking about a situation like this where, you know, we've seen this become such a massive crisis. 
you know, for our country as a whole. So I think government regulations and policies are absolutely critical in saying, look, if there is an opportunity to create manufactured products where you can incorporate, you know, recycled content, and particularly if that's going to help us manage our waste better, then I think, you know, government needs to play a part in saying, here is a, a really sensible way to be able to enable, you know, local economies to develop and to flourish and local jobs to be created in in so many regions so i think there is a role to to play when government comes into picture in in that way but there's also a role that businesses can play and i think to me the fact that we've had um you know support from business partners people who are in the business of recycling we were talking about plastics earlier uh tezam our our e-waste um you know industry partner who's been looking at how they might be able to create innovative products out of waste plastics um for which there is a, a market opportunity so in fact if we can use locally available waste plastics to transform them into products that can go into um you know local solutions um then we don't have to actually go off and import um you know plastic products from overseas so i think to me it's a win-win situation where you're enabling innovative solutions um and and businesses need um that encouragement and support um and i think this is where government can play such a crucial role in making sure that we all help each other and and really enable a whole new economy um to really develop in australia and it is very exciting to to think of this and the possibilities that are there and at the moment though we're stockpiling all of this waste and in melbourne you would you'd know that we've had a, a couple of fires which have sort of blanketed parts mm. of the city in in disgusting smoke because we have these stockpiles mm. of recyclable materials that don't have anywhere to go at the moment how long do we have to kind of turn this around do you think vena because um we can't keep warehousing materials waiting mm. waiting for the next part of the economy to to kick start i imagine yeah look um absolutely and i think this is where again the sort of the thinking around you know micro factories um really allows us to do something at a local level um and do it in a way where where government can actually play a part in saying look if we are seeing um a necessity to create um these types of new solutions and to deploy these new solutions um for a very very important reason as you exactly pointed out that you know we can't afford to have uh, these kind of tragedies where you've got you know combustible materials uh burning and catching fire because that then has a huge implication um you know from a health perspective so i think uh we need to be able to work in a proactive manner uh but again it's not about blaming a recycler or blaming a company it's really about saying you know let's see this as a collective responsibility and let's see this as a nice new way of thinking about a collaborative economy and this type of collaborative economy you know is about um you know governments playing a part and providing perhaps in some instance support for um you know small businesses recyclers who actually might need a little bit of that investment in putting up uh, a new machine or a new piece of equipment that allows them to create value added materials and products and i think again we keep coming back to this point that if we're going to create this as as a whole new economy that's going to be sustainable in the long term then it's really important that we compete on value and by creating value added products that's exactly what we will be doing so i think for us to be able to imagine a future where you know yes the waste 
you know, materials are being collected, we don't have to stop at that point. We then need to reimagine that where locations where waste are being collected could well become a site for where micro factories could be transforming them into, you know, different types of value-added products. And I think, to me, the fact that that can have a ripple effect. So, you know, if you're then feeding that into other manufactured solutions because you've created a manufacturing feedstock, means that you're enabling another business next door to actually start to flourish and start to use recycled feedstock as well. So I think, to me, it's really thinking bigger picture, thinking holistically around a brand new supply chain that enables everyone to benefit. So it's got to be a win-win outcome for every stakeholder. And that's really what, um, you know, where we've um, started off on a circular economy innovation uh, network journey right here in New South Wales. And I think to me, uh, you know, that's a classic example of fabulous work and passion amongst stakeholders, you know, local councils and businesses. But I think, you know, to be able to create this as a longer-term viable solution, we need to create value and and just really where we're coming from and and just lastly vena on on your particular role i mean i've seen photos of your laboratory it looks like an incredibly cool place to work and a a really exciting (laughs) um thing to be doing is there anything in particular you're working on at the moment that you're you're really excited about or excited about kind of sinking your teeth into yeah look i mean we are um you know on this journey with our plastic uh filaments that I was uh, talking about, uh, this work has been uh, supported over the last many years through the Australian Research Council. So I think to me, it's really nice to uh, be able to see that, uh, you know, we've had a a situation where the research has been done, um, you know, in a lab and you do all of the fabulous work in publishing papers and, and all of the good things that you do as a result of research. But I think to me, when you can actually see that research coming to life, um, you know, in a form with, um, you know, working, producing commercially relevant products, as we're doing, uh, for instance, here, um, you know, working with our partners, our industry partners, and really taking this out into the commercial world, um, I think to me is, uh, is the next uh, fantastic opportunity. But I think a few other exciting things coming into the pipeline uh, as we speak as well. Uh, so watch the space. <laughs> <laughs> we will. And thank you so much for chatting with us today. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me on your show. And as mentioned, independent member for Indi, Helen Haynes, is our next guest. She and her electorate up in the northeast of Victoria made history at the election as for the first time ever an independent candidate followed another independent candidate, Cathy McGowan, into office. And Helen Haynes will take up her seat in the lower house next month at the beginning of July when the 46th Parliament sits for the first time. And we've invited her on to Triple R to talk all things Indi. And uh, it's really great to have you here with us Helen. Hi Kalia, hi Dylan and hello everyone. And um, we hear a lot about you know these days north-south divide, city, country divides, old, young, all these sorts of things. Are these the kinds of um, kind of issues that come up in your electorate of Indi Helen or do you talk about the things that unite you up there? Oh look Kalia, um, very much we talk about the things that unite us internally and and that is the landscapes that we live in it's the um, communities that are strong positive communities uh it it is about young and old and how young and old interact and um 
It's also, though, it, it is also a recognition that there are challenges in living in rural and regional Australia, and some of those challenges are quite different to living in a metropolitan area, but some of those challenges maybe have some similarities too. And I guess, um, I guess for us, it's about identifying where are the things that, uh, well, what are the things that we can work on as communities, and, and where is the uh, where's the interaction with government at various levels that can help us achieve what we need to achieve to have um, healthy, positive, uh, engaging lives. And we've just had an election where approximately 24 to 25% of people gave their first preferences to independents and minor parties. And as Kalia mentioned, this is the the first time in Indi that, that an independent has succeeded another independent in a federal seat. What is it, do you think, about Indi in particular that has led to voters being so supportive of, of independent candidates? Dylan, uh, Indi is a pretty special electorate, I think. Uh, For more than 80 years, it was considered a very safe uh, Liberal seat. It was considered a Conservative seat. Uh, And then what we saw in in the election of 2013 was a a revolution, in a sense, of the communities uh, saying, you know what, we would actually like to have more choice in in who represents us. And a grassroots movement was born uh, in that period, uh, which saw... Cathy McGowan elected as an independent, the first rural woman independent in Australia and uh, barnstormed Canberra in a sense. Nobody really saw it coming except the people themselves. So from 2013 through then to the next parliament, so two two parliaments, Cathy was the independent and I think what the people of Indi saw was a different way of doing politics, a positive way of doing politics and real impact in the communities. So that was a, a very good launching pad for me. Um, when you've seen seen uh, a way of doing politics that speaks to you as a as a voter, then I think you're willing to say, let's have some more of that. Okay, we've got a different candidate, but Cathy uh, and I constantly said as we went around the electorate, same stable, different horse. Uh, so the methodology under which I intend to work as a parliamentarian will be very similar to Cathy, um, but I'm but I'm a different person. So you're quite right. It, it is history-making that this has happened, but I think what the people of Indi have is confidence in an independent representation. Yeah, it's really interesting to see that happen. And, I mean, your, your background is is different and you've been a, a founding board member for Indigo Power up there, which we can talk about in a minute, yeah. but you also have a health, health background and uh, we know that rural health services and regional health services need attention. And uh, will you be taking a big platform to this next parliament um, speaking about health, Helen? Yes, Kalia. So I, I campaigned about that uh, consistently throughout the, the election period. And you're absolutely right. I've got a really strong background in uh, in rural health. I've, I've worked in this region for more than 30 years um, as a nurse and a midwife and then as a, a rural health academic. So I've got... And a health administrator too. So I guess I've got a, a, such a strong background uh, in that area. And it's it's such a common concern for people, again, across the, the age spans and across all the various communities. Healthcare is number one in people's minds um, around what's really important to them. And I think, uh, you know, many people say, oh, what, you know, what can an independent do in a majority government? Well, I, I really believe very strongly that I've got a lot to offer to the coalition, uh, to the health minister, and very keen to work closely with Mr Hunt uh, and his team around looking at the issues that face rural communities in, in regards to their health care. We, we know that the burden of disease 
in rural Australia is is 1.3 times that of a metropolitan population. So um, there's a lot that can be done, I think, and there's some great strategies. The peak body in rural health um, put put this election a very strong strategy that uh, there's many programs and ideas in that that I think I can champion very much with this this term of government. And we saw your predecessor Kathy McGowan play a particularly prominent role in the, um, the the parliament just gone given that it was a hung parliament and and this was particularly around the medical evacuations bill of asylum seekers on Manus Island and Nauru and she said in the lead up to I guess deciding which way she'd vote on that that she was considering her p- position very very carefully, but was really calling for her constituents to, to get in touch and kind of help her through that process. And it was an interesting thing to hear an MP talk about that so openly, about consulting with the electorate before actually deciding on which way they might vote on an issue. I mean, is that something that you think you will be likely to do when you have to face these, um, these decisions in, in the parliament? Yeah, so, um, Dylan, this really speaks to this idea that we have in Indi of doing politics differently and really engaging in both directions with communication. So often, I guess, what we see in the business-as-usual politics is, uh, in big-party politics, is that it's the party that dictates the policy and that the um, politicians engage with their electorate at election time. So that's when they're out and about and really, you know, talking with people in a purposeful way. Um, but the way that Cathy undertook her mission as a representative and, and the way that I intend to follow is to keep that conversation going throughout the life of the Parliament. And there's lots of ways to do that. Um, there's, uh, we have a, a, a very large ground force of volunteers that got engaged with my campaign, for example. There's, there's 1,700 of them. And I intend to continue to communicate with them in various ways. Um, we've got some fantastic communication channels using technology, but also to continue to run community meetings um, I'll be looking, uh, in fact, I'm meeting with that group uh, later in the week to look at really um, new ways that they can bring their ideas through to me in a way that's targeted around particular policies. And I think the Medivac one is a really good example. There were a lot of people quite worried that Cathy wasn't coming out clearly and strongly right from the get-go about what she was going to do, but she was consulting with the community and she was over that period of the summer break um, communicating very often with the Prime Minister to to look at ways uh, that this bill could be brought to a conclusion that was satisfactory. So um, it it is an approach where you don't arrive at the Parliament with necessarily very set ideas about how things should roll. Helen Haynes is with us. She's uh, the independent member for Indi in the next parliament and uh, speaking to her about uh, things that are important to her electorate and really, by extension, uh, the rest of us as well. And climate change is one of these issues. And I understand um, you've already... uh, signed some sort of a joint agreement with other independents in the parliament, uh, Zali Stegel and Andrew Wilkie, on these kinds of issues. And obviously, climate change is big uh, in your region, farming, grazing, tourism, vineyards, mm. headwaters mm. for the Murray. So there's a lot for you to, to get your head around there. But is that agreement going to stand as you, as you go into the 46th parliament, Helen? So, Kalia, the, the thing that uh, we all have in common as, as independents is a strong desire to act uh, in a responsible and um, meaningful way around climate. So many people asked 
throughout the campaign, you know, are the independents a block? Well, no, we're not a block. Um, we have very different electorates. We have um, very different policy positions, I'm sure, on lots of issues. But the one thing that we have in common is our desire to have meaningful action on climate. So that's, uh, that's now um, with a coalition government who have some different ideas to what we have. Uh, this will be an area that we'll be working together on to come up with some joint ways that we can... I think work with the coalition government in a way that, that doesn't induce fear, in a way that's collaborative and purposeful and uh, and effective. So when we meet in July, that'll be a, a high order of business for us as independents to to decide how we are going to do that together with, with the coalition government. Uh, and I'm optimistic that uh, that we can work with, with the coalition in a way that that has some has some really good outcomes that the communities are seeking. Here in Indi, we've done a lot of work um, around community energy. You just mentioned that before, and uh, I think it's a great case in point of how communities are, in fact, ahead of government on uh, embracing renewable energy and uh, using the powers around them, solar power, wind power, um, uh, pumped hydro, all sorts of ways that they can harness local energy and do that in a way that, um, that they have control, actually. It's rather democratic, but they can have control over the energy that they need. It's really, I mean, I find that link really um, that Indi elects an independent, but also uh, has some of the well, the most, I think, compared to any other electorate in the country of these community energy, energy democracy type projects where people yeah. want that level of control. I mean, what is it, do you think, driving it in your particular part of Australia where people want to control something as vital as energy? Yeah, I think, again, um, Indi is a very special electorate and... Um, it would be really interesting to study this in a robust way that why is it that these communities are able to take some control and I and I think uh, part of it is the success that we had in 2013 in electing an independent candidate part of it is that um, that communities do believe in themselves and they believe that they can find solutions from the ground up and the community energy movement you're quite right Kalia there's um, 11 community energy projects across Indi, there's a hundred across Australia. It's so extraordinary that so many of them are here. And seeing is believing with anything new. Uh, the little town of Yakandanda that's seeking to have totally renewable energy sources by 2022 will achieve that. They're well on the way. The community can see it working. Uh, so I'd love to get more traction in these projects. I'd love to get our, our energy minister down to Indi to take a look at what's going on and and see the um, not only the clean energy that's being produced in a way that's... Um, providing what, what communities need. They're not having issues in running running their washing machines or their computers or their businesses, um, but that it also uh, provides opportunities for new jobs. It, it's interesting on, on that issue of jobs because in the federal election campaign, particularly around the, the matter of the proposed Adani coal mine, the idea of, you know, it was, it was kind of pitted as jobs versus action on climate change and, and that's given as, as one reason for why there were swings to the LNP in the seats around that sort of area in Queensland. But when you're speaking to your constituents in Indi, I mean, what sorts of things are they concerned about in relation to climate change? Is it around the, the jobs issue? Is it around just care for the environment? What are you hearing from people? I think it's a few things. Uh, and the first thing to say is that uh, Indi is not a coal mm. community, which it makes it very different indeed to, to communities around the Galilee Basin, for example. So I'll just 
say that up front and um, and to acknowledge that when communities are dependent on coal for their local economy, of course uh, those communities are deeply and rightfully concerned about about their jobs and about their future. So Indi isn't faced way with that. Um, but what Indi people are seeing and what I talk to them a lot about is the opportunities for us to really embrace the renewable energy boom. And, uh, and I think many people see that as an opportunity for not only um, producing the energy into, into microgrids, for example, but also to uh, engage in the possibilities of manufacturing new technologies uh, that will contribute to componentry around various renewable energy sources. And I mean, another big issue in your electorate, and again, this is really across large parts of the country, is the Murray-Darling Basin. And um, so yep. what, what are the, your constituents telling you about um, what they're wanting you to do about the uh, Murray-Darling Basin and the plan for that across the four states? Mm, well, as, as you know, this is a, a white-hot issue across rural communities. In Indi, the key message that came through to me was around the governance of the plan and a lack of trust in the governance. Uh, many people were deeply concerned about the water buyback issue that came through during the election, the, then the uh, buyback of $80 million that was um, uh, then uh, taken up by a, a company that was domiciled in the Cayman Islands. This made people very suspicious, very nervous. I think that people have lost trust in some of that governance, so that needs careful examination. The key thing also is recognition that the Murray-Darling Basin Plan is under pressure from climate. Uh, so with, without solid policy around climate change, the Murray-Darling Basin Plan is going to continue to be under pressure. So I heard that, that message very clearly. Also, concerns around the... Um, landholders not being the only people who can purchase water. So when water purchasing rights are un unlocked from landholders, there's concern around uh, big business, corporates, um, shareholders inflating the price of water so that farmers and food producers more generally are unable to afford to buy it. So that's a key issue too. And, and you're The other smoking gun, I reckon, though, is groundwater. And a lot of people spoke to me around groundwater, uh, around water mining, for example. And in Indi, that's an issue that people are most concerned around. In um, the areas of Stanley, for example, there's considerable water mining going on, which is a deep concern to people who are producing food. And you're about to embark on what will be a, a really exciting and, and very different type of lifestyle, I imagine. I'm just interested to know, what's it like when you're entering Parliament for the first time? I mean, is there kind of a, a Parliament 101 training session or <laughs> and when, when might we hear your, your maiden speech? Oh, Dylan, this is so true. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm not the usual contender to be a parliamentarian and that's part of the appeal, I think. Uh, for this independent movement in Indi is that we're trying to ensure that, that citizens who reflect the community are the people who are representing us in Parliament. So by virtue of that, it's all new to me, but I'm very fortunate in that I have Cathy McGowan as a, a close mentor, uh, geographically close and so committed to the ongoing uh, independent movement in Indi. So Cathy's going to be a great, a great advisor to me on, on the what to do. 
and what to expect. Uh, but I do understand there is a bit of a new new Parliamentarians 101 introductory session. I'm looking forward to attending it. Um, it's a strange period now, actually, between the election results and then this limbo period before the AEC formally declare the poll. So I can't actually do anything official until that uh, that declaration occurs, which I, I don't even know when that will be, but I am anticipating it will be later this week. Well, I'm glad that you could speak with us in the meantime, uh, Helen, and it's been really great to speak with you and hopefully we can keep speaking to you as you um, represent your electorate up in Canberra. Thanks so much. No, thanks so much, Kalia, and thanks, Dylan, and uh, have a great day, everyone. And today is Mabo Day, 3rd of June, which uh, commemorates that important day back in 1992 when Edie Koiki uh, Mabo's land rights case led the High Court of Australia to overturn that legal fiction of terra nullius. And a good day, we think, to talk about the future of the Uluru Statement from the Heart with Walkley Award-winning journalist Stephen Fitzpatrick. Stephen was one of a select group of... Of reporters who was invited to be with traditional owners and delegates at Murujulu in Central Australia as that statement was crafted. He's written a remarkable essay about this and more uh, and I suppose where we've landed with the proposed First Nations Voice to Parliament in the latest monthly magazine which um, came out in May and it's also an article that's up online and it's great to have you with Triple R Stephen. Thank you very much. And so, Stephen, you were at the convention at Uluru back in 2017, in fact, um, two years ago, almost to the week. I wonder if we can start by you just describing what it was like to actually be there and see that whole thing unfold. Uh, yes, of course. So there was there was actually an opening ceremony and a closing ceremony to two proceedings, which I sort of put both of those ceremonies together. They were both extraordinary events in their own right. But I suppose held out at at Uluru in the shadow of Uluru, literally in the in the township of Mutitulu. But I guess the the hard work was done over the uh, two two and a half days between those two moments, <coughs> between the two hundred and fifty odd delegates who were the culmination of a selection of around 1,200 people at 12 different dialogues that have been held around the country over the preceding six months. So it was, a, it was an ongoing process and, and the creation or, or the, the, um, the agreement to the Uluru Statement itself was, was the climax, I suppose, of, of what was a very intense process, certainly for the, uh, the, those members of the Referendum Council who, who led these dialogues around the, the country and then, as I say, that coming together of delegates from all of these uh, dialogues around the country for those couple of days in, in, in May two years ago. And you allude in your, um, the title for your essay, A Fresh Canvas for Indigenous Politics, that there is this chance, and I think um, the, the delegates showed that there is a chance for us to start afresh. But also, um, speaking about canvases, we know that there's uh, the, the Yirrkala uh, bark petitions, the Barunga paintings, and as part of this process, an artwork was also created, which I wasn't aware of until your essay. Can you tell us a little bit about that artwork? Yeah, yeah, I suppose I can. I mean, I suppose I should um, <laughs> say it wasn't as though I was being particularly original in writing that. I just, it just occurred to me when I was thinking about the piece that an, an enormous amount had been written about the very important public law reform aspects of the Uluru Statement, but, uh, but I realised that a lot of people weren't necessarily aware of its physicality, and that was just something that struck me very, very strongly. Um, 
the fact that it is literally a canvas with a very important painting painted by um, Rini Kulitur and other women from the America Arts Centre at Modijulu, which tells local dreaming stories. And the, the text of the Uluru Statement itself is placed in the middle of that canvas and then, and then the, the signatures of those 250-odd delegates who are at the convention are, are also within that canvas. So I think that... Um, well, it just struck me that that was an interesting way into writing about the piece that people weren't particularly aware of. And, and the fact that it is, you know, it has become a, an artwork of nas national significance. And I, I mean, in, in this piece I wrote, I, I spoke to Ben Quilty about this, who has had a, a long association with, with some of the artists who created the painting. And, and you know, Ben, in fact, who was the person who brought the artwork from, from Mordijulu, uh, to um, to the east coast and, and began its sort of journey, which was it was taken on a journey around the country, as it were, to familiarise people with it. And, and Ben himself described it to me as you know one of the most significant artworks of our time and and of being of international significance. So whilst I didn't want to diminish from the importance of that public law reform aspect of the entire process, because that, after all, is what we're we're looking to. The other aspect is its is its position as as a piece of art, and also, and you mentioned um, uh, Yokala bark petitions and Baranga statements, and so on. The really important bit about this is that this one was not given to the politicians; it was given to the Australian people, and it won't, unlike those other two you mentioned, it won't hang in Parliament House when the process is completed. It will. The plan is, the plan is that they will go back to Mutitjulu from where it came and where it belongs. And over the past two years, as, as you've reflected on, I guess, being at Uluru and seeing the statement from the heart kind of crafted and, and all that went into that work that I guess it had been done in the years leading up to it, but all the incredible work that was done really over a few days and roughly 250 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people coming together to, I guess, propose or advance what constitutional recognition might actually look like and what it should actually do. As you've observed politics and public discussion over the past two years, I mean, what have you noted? Have you been disappointed in the way that the conversation has gone since then? No, quite the opposite. I've been, I've been really encouraged. Um, and, and I say that because I've watched over time, and, you know, let's, let's remember public law reform is never easy and mm. it's never quick. We have to accept that it's, a, it's a, a bit by bit process. And what I've seen in those two years, and we're seeing it more and more just in recent times, is this absolute grassroots embrace of what Uluru proposes which is a seat at the table for that group of Australians who were never included in the original document, in the original constitution. I and mean, then if you think about it that simply, and I put this in the essay, it's as simple as that there were two groups of parties who discussed what the constitution uh, ought to look like when in fact there ought to have been three. And that third group, which is the First Nations owners of this continent and its adjacent islands, as the statement puts it, were not included in those original discussions. And as a matter of simple public policy, reform, that's what it's addressing and as I've seen the public grasp that and understand that lack in a way that perhaps, you know, governments have been a little slower to, to understand, I've found that really encouraging in fact. And you do write about that, some of the um, the work that's been done to poll people really or, or ask people about their support for a First Nations voice to Parliament and, and other associated issues and perhaps you know, we as a society are further ahead than our politicians. But do you um, have a reflection of where Prime Minister Scott Morrison is sitting, and and with the with the new Indigenous Affairs Minister Ken White, what what might come with him in that um, very important role? 
Look, we, we, we've a lot to see there. I mean, we know that um, Minister Wyatt is, is a supporter of the proposal, and he and, and we've seen the announcement of a new uh, ministry for uh, Indigenous Australians, or rather agency. I'm sorry for Indigenous Australians. So it will still sit within Prime Minister and Cabinet, uh, but it's a, 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 an actual carve out, I suppose, of that agency. We saw uh, with uh, Tony Abbott's creation of the Indigenous Affairs. Um, uh, strategy in, in 2014 was uh, bringing together into PMC of um, Indigenous Affairs. We're yet to see how this new agency might play out. But yes, I think that Scott Morrison is very cognizant of the idea that, that well, A, this is an, an idea whose time has absolutely come. And that B, I guess to go back to, to your previous, my answer to your previous question, is that governments typically, when they see that the, that the bulk of the population is behind a thing, governments also get behind it. You know, governments are very good at, at leading leading from behind, as it were, and that's not to diminish, you know, what, what, what um, the Prime Minister, how the Prime Minister might say, but they're, they're, they're very good at sensing the public mood, typically, um, and and jumping on board and, and leading it to the finishing line. And, and, of course, we've got a couple of significant historic events coming up. You know, obviously, next year will be the 250th anniversary of, of Cook, uh, Captain Cook sailing into, into Botany Bay and uh, a, a few other things that, that could lead, I suppose, the Prime Minister to, to sort of seize the opportunity to, to push this along a little. We're speaking with Stephen Fitzpatrick, a journalist who has penned an article in the May edition of The Monthly all about the Uluru Statement from the Heart and, and speaking to him this morning about where to next for uh, what some of the considerations in, in that proposal might lead to into the future. But it's interesting to me, I mean, in your article it was written, of course, before the federal election and there's allusions to kind of what might happen under a Labor government and there were many people expecting that Labor would be elected on um, May the 18th, but that, of course wasn't happened. Is it the case, do you think at all, that sometimes these types of um, referenda or, or big broad proposals might have a better chance of getting up under a coalition government without that resistance that might exist on, on the right side at all? I mean, is that something that, that you know, is a real way to, to do this kind of reform and might lead to better prospects? Look, that first point you make is the received wisdom that um, conservative governments tend and historically have have proposed and gotten through um, referendums more than than Labor governments. And we know the statistics, you know, only 8 out of 44 referendums have ever gotten up. There's a bit of bias in that. We haven't had one for 40 years. We actually don't know, you know, what are the actual preconditions for a successful referendum. But yes, in general, it would seem that if it's the case that bipartisanship is important in getting a successful referendum, well, then we appear to have that bipartisanship now because we know that Labor went to its national conference in December prioritising uh, the voice to parliament or the, 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 that was called for in the Uluru Statement as its its uh, priority for constitutional change. We saw Bill Shorten reiterate that in his reply to the Closing the Gap speech. We then saw in Josh Frydenberg's first budget this year an allocation of $7.3 million for the development of that voice and a separate allocation of $160 million for a referendum. So I think that if just on the question of bipartisanship um, we're certainly well we're certainly looking in, in in the right direction towards that and and the new labor leader anthony albanese has has indicated he intends maintaining labor's position on on the importance of um supporting the uluru statements call for a voice to parliament so you know certainly things seem to be pointing in the right direction in that regard
Yeah, and I remember um, voting in the what became the you know the failed referendum on on the republic. But I was interested in um, the sort of linking that some of the people that you spoke to. I think Mark McKenna was was one of them linking that um, a republic and also indigenous constitutional recognition together. Can you sort of unpack that a little bit? What how people see those two things interacting? So I think and Mark would be the first to admit, in fact, I think I quoted him in, in the essay, that, you know, that, that his, his thinking has, has come along a lot and certainly he was one of the very um, prominent supporters of, of the Republic. Um, he and, and perhaps other very important thinkers and writers on, the to- on this topic, such as, say, Professor Megan Davis, who was one of the framers of the Uluru Statement, have argued very eloquently that you can't consider the republic until you've considered the first nations issue that is you you can't it it doesn't make sense any longer to try and leapfrog the question of first nations uh representation or or recognition in the in the uh, constitution and now that we have answered the question by first nations what what First, what uh, constitutional recognition looks like, which is this voice to parliament, um, that has to come before the republic. The republic sort of doesn't have meaning until we've addressed that first question. So certainly uh, those thinkers such as Professor McKenna and and Professor Davis and and others um, make a fairly eloquent argument that, um, you know, the republic, I mean, look, I I think a republic could be a great idea as well, but I also think that we have to address this, this crucial absolute lack in the constitution first of first nations representation before we do anything further about a um a a head of state and i note um that you wrote this essay uh uh, in the monthly a fresh canvas for indigenous politics um with a fellowship from the melbourne press club um written in the name um, in the name of um, michael gordon who was also at the um convention with you a a couple of years ago and that seems I, i yeah just from a being in the media myself, it's just a really nice little neat circle there too, um, Stephen. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because if you hadn't, I would have insisted on you doing <laughs> so before you finished the interview. I, I just have to say it was such a privilege to write for, or at least with Mickey Gordon, you know, uh, as the motivator for it, his contribution. He died suddenly and unexpectedly um, uh, uh, the year before last Um uh, whilst whilst completing an ocean swim, which was uh, competing in an ocean swim, which was one of his great loves, and uh, he was not only just a wonderful bloke and and an absolute fixture in Australian journalism, his contribution over many many years uh, to issues around Indigenous affairs uh, were 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 insightful and compassionate, and and he's he's a real loss to to you know to the nation and to to our kind of. I don't know ability as journalists to 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 be able to analyse the issues of what makes us as a nation tick. So yeah, look, I was really fortunate that the um, that Melbourne Press Club has instituted this fellowship. There's been another, a number of other people who've written and produced pieces as uh, Michael Gordon fellows, uh, and all I can say is just a, it was just a great privilege to be able to do it, and and indeed to have been at Uluru with Michael and um, to share to have shared with him what was obviously such a historic moment i think i reflect in the essay that both of us kind of acknowledged we were we were present at one of those few moments where you're where you're seeing history being made yeah completely and it's a really wonderful read and i commend it to um anyone to to head online at the monthly and if you haven't already read your free one monthly article for the month you can read that one um highly recommended otherwise you can um head to their paywall and access it that way thank you so much for speaking with us Stephen, and um hopefully we can speak to you on triple r again soon 
Thanks so much. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.